Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, Professor Cordelia Fine, an expert in the field of gender equality and everything to do with the science behind gender and what makes men and women different if they actually are different. Here are some key takeaways from our conversation. Cordelia's first experience of true leadership believes that our first journey into leadership begins at birth, emphasising the role of the caregiver-baby interactions in shaping our cognitive, social, emotional and moral development. Cordelia challenges gender stereotypes in her books, Delusions of Gender, which is a deep dive into the scientific evidence behind gender differences. She challenges popular views and stereotypes, making academic ideas accessible to everyone. She emphasizes that we inherit not just genes and hormones, but also external resources like caregivers, peers, and cultural artifacts. And finally, closing gender gaps. Cordelia highlights the closing or reversing of gender gaps over time, attributing these changes to gendered environments and cultural influences rather than genetic factors. Cordelia asks you to consider this when reading her books. Parenting is this incredible complex task. It is much more complicated than we think. And when you're reading her books, let's unpeel this journey together and that's what she wants to take away from her books. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. She is truly a considered expert in the field of gender equality and gender differences and it really makes you think as you go through this interview. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series someone who I have been trying to convince for probably nearly 12 months um, that she had a leadership story to tell. So this lady is Professor Cordelia Fine. And I normally don't do much of an intro, but just for those of you who may not have heard of her, I know a lot about this lady through different things. Um, I actually first met her in a police ethic course that the new University of Melbourne sent me to, uh, to the New South Wales Police sent me to Melbourne, to the university. Um, and I met this lovely lady there, but my daughter, uh, Madeline Sicard, is also a massive fan of, um, of Cordelia and I think has done some research work with her. So Cordelia Fine is the author of two, well, there's actually three books, but two of the, the most recent ones is Delusions of Gender in 2010 and Testosterone Rex in 2017. She's a Canadian-born um, uh, British philosopher of science, uh, psychologist and writer. 
She is a full professor of history at the philosophy, at the philosophy of science program at the University of Melbourne, Australia. And recently she's um, uh, been the author of two interesting articles on sex, gender differences, the big conversation, and sperm is cheap, but dads are precious. So that's, a, that's just a bit of the current work that you've um, been doing. So welcome to the show, uh, Cordelia Fine. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and for having me and for being yeah. so patient. <laughs> no, no, no. What I find, uh, just a little bit of history for the for the listeners, because um, this goes all over the world, Cordelia. Um, when I first asked Cordelia to come on the show, she said, well, I, I'm not in the league of um, the courage to lead. Uh, but, you know, my, my view of um, Cordelia is, um, you know, gender and gender equality and, and all the things you discuss about is, is something that has to be led uh, because we don't think of it about it. we all don't think about it probably the way that you think about it and you have this massive following um, and I love the content so I think it's a story that you know it, it needs courage to lead this discussion so because not everyone wants to hear it <laughs> so um, uh, which you probably found uh, and some of my friends are in this space and I often see some negative feedback they get because they try and push this space uh, and, and it, that it needs to be heard so um, enough, enough from me. Um, what I'd like to do is Cordelia's done her homework. So the first, every guest on this show gets asked two questions. Cordelia, what is your first ever true experience of leadership? And it could be yesterday or it could be as a five-year-old. Well, I'm going to give an answer that means that everyone else has to give the same answer from now on, because I think <laughs> everyone's first experience of true leadership is at birth, um, and I'm gonna give a sort of nerdy answer to this question that's a reflection of the kind of pre preoccupation of what I'm working on at the moment, which is sort of thinking about how we develop and how, and, and you know, the background to that is how do gender differences develop. But part of that has been sort of probing into these changing scientific ideas of, you know, how we, how we, develop, as, uh, how we develop as people. And this is kind of, uh, competition between competing views, right? So there are um, sort of a brand of evolutionary thinkers who say we kind of have all this knowledge built in already. So it's like the, you know, the, like a, an innate language structure or something. And we just need a bit of uh, input from the environment to sort of, you know, ratchet it all up. And, and then there's sort of another group of evolutionary thinkers who, who, who see us, and, and this is a, um, a term from the philosopher Kim Sterelny, as sort of evolved apprentices. So we, you know, caregivers and babies are kind of um, co-designed to sort of both to learn from each other and to teach. And, and when you start to look into the literature, the sort of just the the richness of you know these sort of caregiver baby interactions, for example, the way that the the, the child's emotional capacities, for instance, are sort of um, you know assisted. They learn learn through that through these very kind of intimate interactions with their caregiver. So you know, baby shows um, you know makes a little face, and the caregiver will kind of exaggerate it back to the baby. The, the caregiver will will kind of respond more to positive you know emotions that are culturally valued versus, versus those that that are weren't you know helping the baby learn how to regulate him or herself and so all these sort of uh, you know ongoing uh, ongoing sort of interactions and then of course well anyone who's taking care of a small child will know <laughs> you know you're always engaged in sort of passive or active teaching of teaching of some kind and and you know that's that's the building blocks of everything for every 
child, right? It's the it's the cognitive building blocks, the social building blocks, the emotional building blocks, the moral building blocks, right? And it all it all starts right there, right there from the beginning. And it's been interesting to me, you know, a lot of your previous guests, when you've asked them this question, have have often talked about things that their parents did, and you know, yes. like particular moments where, you know, mum said this or dad dad did this, and it's been you know really kind of defining moments for them. Yes. And and I think we often can parenting such a sort of ordinary thing, isn't it? <laughs> you yes. know, so many people do it. And yet it is extraordinary. Like it's this incredibly complex task. And you know, t- parenting a a one week old baby is completely different to being a parent of an 18 year old, you yes. know, child on the you know, so it's this extraordinary challenge. Um, and, and privilege. Yes. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah, 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 on both yeah. sides, obviously. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah so anyway, and, and you know, I get, I don't know—is that your leadership? I don't know. I'll say it is for the purposes of this podcast, but it is. It's about helping. You know, there's someone that you're you're helping to to flourish and grow, and you know, hopefully, you know, in the in the right directions, <laughs> in the right that's way. A, that's a really um, it's a great example when you think about it because that first. That what how you describe that that first uh, emotional cue that the a baby will give a parent and the babe and the or the caregiver amplifies that back and then the baby knows well oh that that worked I'm, I'll do I'll do that again or something yeah that's um that's a it's a really it's a we're off to a great start you you you're making <laughs> you're making me think already and I'm sure you're making the listeners think and that's what I love about what you do so okay that's a really good good response um. The second one then is, uh, and this is probably be hard, maybe. Uh, what is something about Cordelia Fine that no one knows? Um, well, so this this one I struggled with, and I, I think it's quite funny that this is like <laughs> from from your field. This is your idea of like a little gentle icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, look, so I, I, I'm going to cheat slightly here because it's something that a few people know, but they did survive the experience, which is I, I once wrote a um, very bad novel and it's never seen, never seen the light of day, but uh, okay. I, I did I did do that. Yes. What was it called? Gosh, I can't even remember. Yeah. How long, how long ago? Um, I would have been in my early 20s. I just finished my PhD and yeah. probably looking for a change from writing. <laughs> Yes. You know, kind of dry academic um, writing that no one would read. So instead I wrote some very bad fiction that no one would read. So <laughs> at least it was a change in one respect. Yeah. Can you remember what your first PhD was on? What was the topic? Oh, I only had one PhD. So my PhD was, oh gosh, it was quite dull. Um, I was, it was interested in emotional learning and, um, and actually I, uh, I some of the research that I did was interested in, you know, which parts of the brain were involved in processing different kinds of emotional learning and relearning. And so some of the work I did uh, was actually at Broadmoor Hospital, you know, a secure psychiatric um, hospital in the UK, uh, looking at um, uh, you know patients there who had been discovered to have lesions to parts of their brain. So giving them giving them certain kinds of sort of emotional and social and moral tasks and and seeing how they did. So that was um that was certainly a kind of interesting, interesting oh experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what I'll, and that's a really good dovetail into what the rest of the interview is about. So here we have in front of us this obviously educated, considered um, thinker 
uh, who who ponders and finds evidence uh, and research um, about all these complex issues around how we're made, essentially, and and is there a difference between men and women, um, and is there a, is there a difference between genders? Um, and your books are pretty pretty. Um, I really like they're pretty they're pretty simple in in we're we're pretty well all the same, uh, and it's just it's just our upbringing or our um, our social constructs that that cause how we end up rather than what what might have happened exactly what you started there with that uh that example about a caregiver and a baby um so i've probably simplified that way too way too much because it's a lot more complex than that um so my question to you now is uh how do you get made you know how does how does this story start where you you do take on this issue about gender um and what it's all about to you and 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 doing these big pieces of works in in the in the two books that I mentioned before how, how does your story start uh, and and you take us where you want us to take it like mm. you can go back to school or, or where does it start where you start thinking about things in this way and want to share that with the world yeah so not I mean not 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 back to school certainly um, I mean actually I when I did my degree, which is in psychology, I learnt um, – actually, one of, Richard Dawkins was one of my lecturers – and, you know, I learnt all about, um, you know, sexual selection, so the idea of, um, you know, sort of evolved evolved sex differences between males and females, and, you know, I find that already fascinating. It seemed like a really beautiful, neat e explanation. Um, and I actually remember when I went on to do a master's in criminology, and I actually remember writing an essay arguing, <laughs> you might like this, <laughs> that, that there should be more, we needed more female police officers because they were better at mind reading and they're more empathic. Um, and so that they, you know, they'd be a sort of a real asset to the to the police force. Um, so I certainly, um, you know, sometimes people assume that I kind of, that my sort of, I come from a sort of a kind of, Judith Butler kind of <laughs> background of postmodern queer theory and things like that, and nothing nothing could be um, further from from the situation. Um, but the, the the way that I got into this topic was actually through, funnily enough, through through my um, through parenting, through being a parent. So I like to I like to research things. <laughs> so, um, so, so even when I was a parent, I was, you know, I guess lots of people read parenting books, and I, I had an awful lot that I used to that I used to read. And one of them, uh, a friend had recommended to me, and it was about how boys and girls' brains are different, and so they need to be parented in different ways. And I was interested, so I, I read the book, and part of the book mentioned a part of the brain that I actually studied quite intensively when I was in my PhD. One of my patients from Broadmoor had, had a lesion to this part of the brain. So I was, uh, you know, I sort of knew my way around it, so to speak. Yeah. And I thought that's interesting. Well, nobody, you know, at, when I was doing my PhD, nobody was talking about sex differences in the brain. So I looked at this, the study at the back that was the reference, you know, showing, supposedly showing that there are these sort of marked differences between male and female brains. And I was just shocked by the disconnection between what the actual research study showed, because I went looked it up, yeah. um, and what was being said in the in the popular book. And at the time, I was employed um, part time as a research associate, and it was a part of a project 
in, in an area called neuroethics. And the project I was involved in was interested in the way that these new functional neuroimaging technologies, so that, you know, you can put people into scanners and you can do these sort of complex um, complex analysis to see, you know, patterns of blood flow and so on. And people have been, and, you know, sort of, that the technology seemed to give us this sort of privileged insight into what's going on to our brains and therefore our minds. And the project was interested in how these new neuroimaging technologies were changing our conception of ourselves. Mm. And, and so I was interested in how this sort of popular representation of supposed findings of sex differences in patterns of brain activation from neuroimaging technologies, you know, how that was influencing discussion, understanding of sex differences in brain and behavior. And so I started to look at more popular books, and a lot of these books were kind of drawing on these claims. Oh, you know, neuroscanning, brain scanning has shown X, brain scanning yeah. has shown Y. Like, finally, we see the truth in the brain yeah. scans. And, you know, it was, it was you know, really poor quality stuff. The, the, the yeah. work was being, you know, overinterpreted, misinterpreted, sometimes even fabricated. It was, yeah. and it just really worried me that, these popular books like this was this is how people were getting their information about what science said about sex differences in the brain so that's when I thought well I'll write my own book yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know just clear a few things up so that's that's that was that book was the book the book came to be a delusions of gender but the book actually ended up being not the book that I imagined because I assumed that I just go to the scientific literature and say, look, here's what the science shows and here's how the popularizers are exaggerating it. In fact, what I found is that when I went to the science, I found a lot of things that did not make sense to me. And that's when I started to realize that there were these kind of assumptions, these gender stereotypes were sort of being you know, implicitly built into the way that the scientists were, you know, designing their studies, interpreting their studies, and the kinds of conclusions that they drew. And, you know, that's when I realized, oh, right, this is going to be a more complicated book, because yeah, I'm not just going yeah. to be targeting the popularizers, but the scientists, and it's also going to be a more controversial, uh, a controversial book. But yeah. that was a book that I, that I wrote. And then I was hooked. I became completely fascinated by the topic and have been working in the area ever since. Do you want to, um, and this is where someone like you uh, is, uh, you're going to gloss over, like that's a massive body of work. You kind of gave us a hint that um, it was a complicated book because you were taking on the, the recognised experts and the popularists, I suppose. Um, so do you want to take us into... Uh, Probably let, let me ask this in three parts. What that kind of book's about? If you could summarise that book, what did you learn about yourself while you were writing that book? And what did you want the reader or the listener, because I've listened to it on audiobook, um, uh, what did you want the, 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 the reader or listener to take away from that book? So that's three, three mm. questions, but I, th I normally wouldn't ask that that way, but I, I think... For you, you know, you've got this amazing brain um, that's identified this, um, I forget what you called it, disconnect, I think you called it, um, in the literature. So what, what, you know, what is the book about? What did you learn about yourself? And you may, it sounds like you changed direction a little bit in your own thinking, which is what, what someone 
as educated uh, as you does um, because you, you can, we're all continually learning. Um, and then what do you want the, the reader to take away from it? Over to you. Right. Yeah, gosh, thanks. Um, so what is what is the book about? Um, look, the, book, the book's kind of in three parts. So the first part is take it, sort of was taking on this assumption. And so I was writing the book, it got published in 2010. So I was you know, writing it a few years before that. But uh, what I was noticing in the, dis well, in the discussions was these claims that w we actually have equality now, you know, in countries like Australia, UK, uh, US. Um, and so if we still see differences in outcomes for men and women in terms of, um, you know, abilities or in particular, you know, what kind of roles people are taking on in society, then you know, there must be a kind of biological explanation because it can't be explained by social factors because it's all we're all gender equal, we're yeah. all gender equal now. So the first part of the book was just saying, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Mm. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Yeah. Um, the second part was looking at the same question from the other point of view. So the first part is like, well, there's no other explanation, so it must be biology. And then the, sec the, the second part of the argument is, and here, let us show you that hormones, brains are different, right? Well, of course, hormones are different, brains are somewhat different. So the second part of the book was kind of taking apart those arguments, mm. not to say, uh, oh, you know, it's all, it's all socialization, but just to say these these um, arguments that we've been given, these claims that are being made, actually, when you start to peel apart all the assumptions that they're built on, there's not much left. So, you know, not saying that there isn't something there, um, but to to question the answers that that have been that have been offered. So, it looked both at this uh, these ideas that. Um, you know, prenatal hormones kind of wire a male brain and a female brain, which sort of extrapolates from uh, well-established research in animals to humans. Yeah. Um, and just pointing out some of the the problems with the conclusions that are drawn from that research. And then it was looking at these claims of sex differences in the brain, you know, pointing out things like Often these studies are done with really small samples, so they're probably just spurious results. In fact, sometimes they're shown to be spurious results. Uh, the point that just because something's in the brain doesn't mean that it's innate because our brains are plastic and they respond to their environments. It would be kind of extraordinary if there weren't sex differences in the brain. Yeah. Um, and then third, that even if we see a difference in the brain, we actually don't know what it means. We can't read out a kind of psychological state from differences in brain activation or brain structure. And it was just sort of demonstrating the way that scientists would be drawing on gender stereotypes in order to interpret the evidence they were seeing. So um, one really nice example actually comes from the philosopher Robin Bloom. So she was talking about this kind of neuroimaging research, uh, you know, brain scanning research, looking at brain activation, people are doing emotional processing. So she looked at a bunch of studies that were interested in sex differences in emotional control. And in particular, they're looking at a part of the brain in the prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, involved in controlling emotion. And she found that, you know, some studies would find that this part of the brain was more active in men. And they say, oh, this is why men are more emotionally controlled than women. 
some would find that the part of the brain was less active in men. And they say, oh, this explains why men are more emotionally yeah, controlled than women. Yeah. And some wouldn't find any differences at all, but they still somehow managed to conclude that, you know, their brain differences meant that, you know, men were more emotionally controlled than women. So this was just like, um, you know, you have to speculate in science to some extent, but this was just a really nice example of, because of our gender stereotypes, basically whatever we find in the brain, we'll just we'll just conclude that it you know reinforces the truth of you know men are men are the thinkers and women are the feelers. These you know yeah, these yeah. these old very old stereotypes. Then the third part of the book was just, um, I guess in a way trying to sort of um, explaining that there are new, you know, the sort of old view of socialization was that that you know care caregivers just kind of force gender roles onto children this like this is the idea actually of the blank slate you kind of inscribe gendered scripts into this blank slate of a mind and it was pointing out that gender psychologists understand gender socialization to be a much more sort of complex but also active process so in particular particularly once children come to know, you know, themselves as a boy or a girl, then they become very active self-socializers. So they're like, ah, this is my group. Uh, this is my tribe. I've already learned, I've spent two or three years learning <laughs> what's masculine and what's feminine because the world has provided me many, many examples of that. Yeah. And I'm a little sponge and I'm picking it all up. And now I know which side of this, which team I'm on, like I'm motivated mm. to, to, to be drawn to those kinds of things. So it was, you know, really just saying, people say, oh, I tried to raise my children gender neutral. And, you know, you can try and do that, of course, um, but you can't do it. It's you know unless you lock your child in a box. It's uh, mm. that's which I don't recommend. It's no. <laughs> it's not it's not it's not going to happen. But yeah. Oh, sorry. Now I have two more questions. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's, 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 so the third part was about the socialization yeah. and then yeah. the the constructs between there we're a blank mind or or we're we're made by the environment around us. Is that is that so what would be your conclusion? Well, there's, there's just a very kind of active process. And like in that mix, there's going to be, um, you know, your your kind of biological proclivities, right? Um, and, you know, I think it's probably very plausible that there are kind of average differences between boys and girls in the sort of biological proclivities with which they're born as a kind of, as a kind of tilt. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same as saying that there's a kind of, intended outcome for for boys or an intended outcome for girls so let me just give you um an example um so some people talk about you know really serious physical aggression as being a kind of intrinsically masculine trait and they'll 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 say things like you know, we can try and ramp it down with culture and, and norms, and we can do pretty well at doing that. But there's a kind of underlying, there's a kind of underlying um, physical aggression to the child that that, that, that kind of pre-exists culture. And all we can do is kind of dampen it down. Yeah. Um, the con contrasting point of view, which to me is the more plausible one, is that there are in some children, some and many more boys than in girls, there is something that kind of tilts them towards, makes it more likely that they'll follow a particular developmental trajectory towards that kind of physically violent mm -hmm. phenotype 
more boys than girls. But there's a there's a developmental trajectory and it's it's not a kind of inevitability. The pathway is being constructed as you go along. Whereas the sort of the other point of view is there's a pathway, there's an a kind of in, evolutionarily intended pathway and the best that we can do is try and you know divert people right so so i guess that's the that's the difference um and and i think you know we have to think about each trait people people often think that you know the story must be same for every every kind of gendered characteristic that we're interested in like whatever the story is for physical aggression it's going to be the same one for empathy or spatial cognition or whatever it is and it's not clear to me that's true there might be kind of different stories for different kinds of traits so I mean in my work my I guess what I'm always trying to do is question answers I think that's Mm. um I get people to think about things um in a different way and, and I guess challenging some of the more the sort of simpler popular views of sex differences that people often encounter try and make the ideas from the academic literature more accessible to the general audience because i think it's a shame that it's often just locked up in very inaccessible writing yeah Mm. so the second question i kind of ask you in that is what did you learn about yourself in writing delusions of gender but I think you're just kind of hinting at it a little bit and if you wanted to go there um did it take courage to write about it did you know you were going to have a conflict um uh with putting the book out there or or you yeah did you just Uh, write it (laughs) oh I was I was so anxious yeah yeah um do you want to talk about it talk about that then Uh, that's (laughs) I think people don't appreciate um, like I, I've written my first book, um, and, and you just think no one wants to read it. It's just rubbish. But but mine's just a simple story, whereas yours is taken on scientific uh, norms, I suppose, that have been out there for possibly centuries or longer. So it must have been. Um, tell it, talk about it. What's what's? How do you actually mm. have the courage to write it and then publish it? Well, I, know, I actually never thought about it in that way before, but um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I just had to write the book as I saw the, as I saw the evidence. So, mm. um, I mean, it was a, it was a strange time because, you know, my children were quite young. I wasn't. I'd actually quit my research job to have time to write it because I, you know. Because the children were very young, wasn't there so much I could do? Yeah. So I was kind of in a, I was, I kind of sort of, from a work sense, obviously in a, in a broader sense, I wasn't isolated because you know how life is when you've got small children. But yeah. in that kind of um, academic sense, I was, I was quite isolated, and it was strange to be sort of sitting in my <laughs> bedroom slash office, um, criticizing, you know, professors at Cambridge and all this yeah. kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but one one thing that was kind of reassuring was that somehow I I, I ended up at a conference um, with people who had sort of similar research interests, and I met um, another academic, sociomedical scientist called Rebecca Jordan Young, and she'd actually been working herself actually for for many years on a book that it, it was very much focused on this this story about prenatal hormones. 
Um, but she'd been she'd been, you know, working for years and years on analysing this data and um, taking a really close look at whether the evidence supported this this theory, which had been applied to humans, and concluding that it concluding that it didn't. Um, so when I met her and I heard about her work, I was like, "Oh, I'm not mad, right? Good." <laughs> Um, so that was that was very reassuring. And her book, Brainstorm, is an absolutely uh, incredible, incredible piece of scholarship. And and so it was quite, you know, our books came out actually very similar at very similar times. And that was, I think that was helpful. Um, but yeah, I know, I don't know. I just, you know, I wrote, I wrote it and that was, that was it. I didn't really, I didn't particularly want to pull my punches. So yeah. Um, what did you learn about so I, well I've, I've kind of sidetracked you there a little bit um, yeah. what did you what did you learn about yourself oh I, I in, in right in writing that book like so that's a major piece of work so um, uh, how long did it take you to write it um you know I can't I can't really remember now but I, I think it was probably probably one and a half to two years or something something like that I, I'm a bit I'm very vague on dates my friends I work in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, and they always say, like, clearly you could never be a historian. <laughs> How long have you been with your partner? Somewhere between one year and 100. I'm not sure. <laughs> like, not, I'm not very good on dates. But, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, something. What I learned about myself, probably just that I'm not fun to live with when I'm writing a book. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is probably the main, the main thing. Yeah, okay. What, um, what what was your writing style? Where did, did you write all day? Did you write for a couple of hours a day? And how, what worked for you? Uh, well, we had there was quite a regimen because it's like the children were the children were quite small, so there was like you know that when that time is incredibly precious, um, you know, time to obviously the time of the children was precious too, but the time yeah, to yeah. the time the time to work. So um, yeah, it's just you know when the kids were in. Um, kindergarten or whatever whatever it might be so I mean I think in a sense if at the time it felt like I didn't have a lot of time to work but you know now that I'm in a um, you know a proper a proper academic job it's like oh now I know <laughs> now I know what it means not to have any time but there were relatively few kind of work distractions that was in, in that sense actually was quite I was quite fortunate to have okay. that head, to have that mental headspace so I'd when you the book, wrote the yeah. book, um, and, uh, and this, is, this is interesting because I, I, I have an inkling of your story, but um, you said that you're a researcher and you quit your research job to write the book. Are you a professor uh, in your um, chosen field at the time you wrote the book or not? No, no, no. Okay. Um, no, I was, <laughs> I was, I was nothing. Um, and... Yeah, and then after the after I wrote the book, uh, then I got uh, then I got another academic position. Um, so I got a, a research position at Macquarie University and in the Centre for um, Applied Values and Ethics, and then actually I got a position at the Melbourne Business School. Okay. Yeah. So I've actually we've jumped a little bit there, but let's go back to that third question then. What did you want the reader to take away from Delusions of Gender? Yeah, I think like as with the next book and the one I'm writing, 
it's just it's all a bit more complicated than you've been told <laughs> which is such a such a hard message to sell isn't it i mean i yeah. think i think people like you know simple <laughs> simple messages but um that that really is the message it's much more complicated than um than we think and i love that like, i love i love taking an idea you know here's this package here's this sort of package scientific package that tells us why the men and women are different and just unpeeling all the layers um i love doing that and i i try and do it in a way that makes it interesting for the reader to kind of unpeel with me um yeah. so yeah let's unpeel this together that's my message <laughs> okay and that makes it fun for you to write as well oh no it's oh, very yeah. hard <laughs> Good stuff. Well, I think you've um, just by the way, this is uh, using your word. I'm peeling how you, how you're how you're made. So you end up you write the book, um, Delusions of Gender, uh, and then you get a research job at Macquarie University in Applied Values and Ethics, and then you get a gig at Melbourne University. So is that as a research officer? Uh, that was. Um... It was initially a, a research role, but but then it became a I became an associate professor there, and then in two thousand and seventeen I moved to the arts faculty, and that's when I got the professorial role. So let's um just explore a little bit. So you write delusions of gender as a researcher, and I'm sure you you described yourself as nothing. Um, but maybe in the academic field, people academics could probably appreciate what you mean by that. Um, what was the the outcome or the flow on from delusions of gender for you as a as a, a now academic author of a a book that was controversial to current to common thinking in in academia um yeah look i mean i think it was um i don't, yeah i don't know quite how to answer that question i mean i guess it established some credentials in the in the gender area um and along the way and sort of through i guess through all of this i been sort of pottering away with the, the sort of more conventional academic articles and I've, you know con continued to do that um, through my career um, but after I moved to the business school I applied for a research fellowship um, this is for sort of mid-career researchers and um, I was fortunate enough to to get that fellowship um, that's called a future fellowship so that you know i'm sure the book would have helped in um in that particular grant success and so that gave me a bit more time research time part of which i used to work on the next book which was testosterone rex so that was like mm. the sequel <laughs> to yeah, solutions uh, agenda i liked yeah. uh, it it was mm. it, it it was a uh, an evolving thing because I, I did read I, I have read both of them um and it is this, and it's a very conversational the way you, so my memory of testosterone rex is very conversa conversational on different issues and different people 
examples of different people um, all the way through it. Um, let, just let's rewind a little bit for people that aren't aren't in academia. Ac academia. Um, so you're an associate professor in Melbourne University um, in a research role, and then you enter the arts faculty of Melbourne University and you get your professorship. Do you want to give people, like you said that very quickly, but not everyone I know in academia is a, is a professor and it's pretty hard to get there. Um, uh, how does that happen? The time, like, like 2010 to 2017, you're a professor. That doesn't happen easily. You've got your two little kids. Um, you've written one book and you're in the process of probably writing another one to Tostrom Rex. So how does, how does a professorship happen and what's involved? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, so look, the Testosterone Rex had been written and was ready to be published when I moved to the um, moved to the job in the arts faculty. Um, look, I mean, the, convention, the conventional route is not the one that I took. So, you know, you get your PhD, you have hopefully have, you know, a few years as a uh, in what's called a postdoctoral position, where you can mainly focus on research and kind of get some runs on the board in terms of publications, which is you know one of our main currencies in academia. Mm. Um, and then you kind of move into a, if you if you're lucky, you move into a um, a kind of continuing um, teaching and research role. And then there's a you have like kind of five years to prove yourself, and then you get what's called confirmed, and then you're then you're off, and then there's sort of all kinds of, um, you know, it, it, you know, it, you at certain points you think right, I'm going to go up for a promotion, and you put in your application, and you know, there's a very formal process for deciding whether you go up to the up to the next level or not. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my path was a bit different in, the, in that I'd had periods in and out of academia. I'd worked part-time for many years, which has become more common, but it was certainly pretty com uncommon uh, uncommon back then. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd also spent quite a lot of time doing popular writing instead of, you know, the academic publishing. Though I think what helped is that the books were, although they were accessible and they were published by... Uh, you know, commercial publisher, they're also, you know, obviously well referenced and yeah, scholarly. Yeah. And I would yeah. organize my own, make sure they're all, every chapter was read by an expert and, you know, all this, um, all this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, people, I mean, people sometimes ask me for career advice and I was like, God, don't, don't, <laughs> I wouldn't particularly recommend what I did. It was a bit risky, but <laughs> um, yeah. That's probably why you're on the show because it. Um, my limited knowledge of your field is being a woman is harder. Being being part time makes it even harder. Uh, then taking on the believed norms is, makes it even harder. <laughs> uh, but then, in a ten in a seven year period, you become a professor from from your description, nothing. Uh, so um, I think there's that's that's there's a lot of courage there. There's a lot of, there's a really good story there. Uh, so I think you've glossed over it a lot, but anyone in academia would know that's pretty impressive because you didn't, because uh, one of the things I, I've heard 
And I think I learned it um, when I was down in your course, uh, in as in the police, the ethics course that the, the police, New South Wales Wales Police sent me down to. Um, you guys have to apply for grants all the time, don't you, to to, to kind of further your work, and that's that's a that's a process in itself. It's a popularity. It's a it's a reputational thing. Um, and and uh, are you part of the norm or not thing? <laughs> so it it's interesting the progress you made in a relatively short period of time. And now people are going to be thinking she doesn't deserve it. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no, I think I, I think you do deserve it because it's um. I mean, there must be is there, is there? Can you put your finger on it? Why? Why you would are you uh, like for you to write the books that you've written? You're obviously back yourself. Can you describe what who you are around when you're in this mode? Like you're in this the writing mode, the professor mode. Uh, gosh, look, I, look, I I don't know. I look. One of your previous guests who I listened to, you know, talked about having. Um, I'm afraid I can't remember her name, but she talked about shifting from a career in law to... Oh, yeah, Ali yeah, Walker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she talked yeah. about having that safety net, and I thought, you know, that's a really good point, and I um, I think, I, you know, I enjoyed the same... Uh, the joy, the same safety net. Um, and, you know... Yeah, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know how to answer your question... Alan, sorry, I'm showing, I'm showing an extraordinary lack of self-awareness, aren't I? <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's um, I think you think it's normal what you've done, uh, but there, like, if if I could, like, we don't know that many professors really, like, in, in our circles. We, oh, the you, two you, penny where I go. Yeah, yeah, you, <laughs> you do, you do, but the rest of us don't. Um, so it's just interesting, and and I, it's so typical of um, leaders such as yourself. You're very modest about what you've achieved it's it's just it's just your journey so it's happened um can, can you remember any challenges along the way in those seven years where you thought like you actually talked about um you go for promotions and sometimes you kind of left the hint there that sometimes it doesn't happen was there any kind of setbacks where you thought i'm done but you just kept on going in that seven year journey towards being a professor um Yeah, look, I, I, yeah, I had, I, I, I didn't get, I didn't have secure employment until 2017. Um, wow. So, okay. um, you know, which is unfortunately relatively common now in academia. Um, so I was, you know, on a series of short-term, you know, sort of fixed-term contracts, um, you know, really from the, really from the start. And, you know, I had very supportive people along the way. Um, but I didn't have that, I didn't have that secure employment and I suppose I've, yeah, there's certainly, I do remember periods of feeling, um, wondering whether I'd be able to cling on <laughs> and stay. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's put it that way. Let's put it that way. So, um, I mean, part of the problem though was I, I feel like I'm, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if other, I, some at least some other academics feel like this, but sometimes you feel like you're you're like this sort of over-evolved species that is so 
adapted to like a very specific environment that you couldn't survive anywhere else and would be useless <laughs> yeah. completely non-functioning everywhere else it's just like sometimes you think like well where else could i work like i don't know who else would want me so yeah. you think this is yeah this is this is it for me so i better i better um i better make it happen um and what's uh, I, I remember reading i don't know whether you shared it with it in your in your book i, th I have an inkling it was in the second book or maybe you shared it in the course where you taught us on the ethics. Um, what, what's your husband do? Because you're from different backgrounds, aren't you? Um, yes. So, well, my husband, when I was writing Delusions of Gender, is he's trained as a as an engineer. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he does um, sort of building and construction okay. work. Yeah. Yeah. But my current partner is an academic. Okay. All right. I didn't know that, so I didn't. I wasn't digging for that. So. Oh no, that's all right. <laughs> uh, um, I didn't. When I say current partner, I don't mean like the one I happen to have at the moment. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should just say my partner. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. No, um, okay. So it's really interesting. So let's go into probably the same question. Then, what's um, testosterone rex about? Uh, you know, what's what's the story? Did you learn something different about yourself in that? And did you did you have a different outcome or the same outcome for your readers? Uh, so to answer your second question first, that confirmed what a dreadful person I am to live with when writing a book. Um, and so this book, it's a sequel in the sense that the, the first book was, well, Delusions of Gender was kind of looking at um, ideas about prenatal hormones and brain differences and and the testosterone rex was the book that i was writing when i was at the melbourne business school and so that was a kind of it was a different environment um there, you know, there was a lot more interaction with the business community which i actually really loved and um and then also just sort of i guess being in a in an environment where there are lots of different disciplines, right? So there's um, there's economics and finance and psychology and um, marketing and 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 so I think in that environment I started to think about these questions that people were asking, at, you know, particularly at that time around circulating levels of testosterone and what difference that made to people's behavior and you know the role of sex differences in that and then also uh issues about evolution so it felt like those were like the pieces of the puzzle that i hadn't tackled in delusions of gender so okay you've done the brains and the prenatal hormones but what about you know what about testosterone what about evolution so testosterone rex was like okay well what about them so let's so let's take a look and you know as as with all my books, and this, this, is part, this is kind of what makes them so hard to write in a way, I don't really know what the book is going to be. It sounds very vague, but there's a sense in which I don't know what the book's going to be. The thesis kind of emerges as I do with the research. Yeah, so yeah. The, that's part. That's the part of it that I really love. For me, it's like a it's like a mystery yeah, <laughs> yeah. that I'm trying to solve by, you know reading 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 research from different disciplines so um so that book in a sense is about about how uh scientific understandings of of evolution have been have been changing 
and it's about the complexities of the relationships between hormones and behavior with a particular focus on on testosterone um i seem to remember and i I'm, i don't think i'm getting your book i seem to remember a story about the the male workers going to the sex show after after is that is that your book or is it someone else's book um where like the 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 male leaders the male managers all get invited to the bar where the sex show is and the and the and the female leaders can't go to that is that your book or is that um i yeah i think one of my books does talk about you know that kind of uh, corporate entertainment uh, yes, and yes. how it's not particularly friendly for for uh, for women. Uh, so it might have been my book, but it might have been some. I didn't. I don't think I mentioned it in relation to hormones, though. So okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what what can the reader expect from? And I've read. I have read the book. It's been probably a couple of years now since I've read that one. Um, test. What can they re- expect from testosterone, Rex? <laughs> It's an amazing, an amazing it's, it's, scientific adventure, Alan. <laughs> it's a great title. I love the title. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. What can they expect from testosterone Rex? Um, yeah, look, I'm not going to sell sell myself very well again because I think like the it's the same message that uh, that that there's we there's this sort of neat story that people are really familiar with. It starts with sperm are cheap and then it ends with, and that's why men rule the world. Mm. Um, and in between that is testosterone, you know, driving men to do this, that and the other. And it, it's, again, this, the, the book is a kind of unpacking of that story um, to show that uh, that it's it, it's actually much more, it's much more complicated. And I think one of the, I think one of the sort of key ideas in that in that book, uh, a kind of an important shift in how evolutionary scientists think about that topic, is that we tend to think, okay, so we have these, you know, we're we're evolved creatures, um, and so we <clears throat> we have these we've evolved adaptations to you know succeed in survival and reproduction. And so how do these adaptations get passed on from generation to generation? Well, they're inherited. And we assume that they're always inherited through genet- genetics, through, through our genes. And genes are an important source of inheritance, but sort of change in evolutionary thinking is actually we inherit a lot of things. Um, and, and this actually brings us back right to the beginning of our conversation when I was talking about these interactions between the baby and the caregiver. So yep, yep. we inherit uh, we inherit a caregiver who is going to respond to us in particular kinds of ways, and we inherit you know a nest or we inherit um, peers. So we inherit all these developmental resources, um, f- you know, that enable us to develop develop and if those resources are inherited reliably generation after generation then they can be part of what enables the individual to develop the um the 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 adaptive trait so this is all very abstract so let me just give you a concrete example which is um from rats so um when rats are born their mother 
rats inherit a mother if they don't inherit a mother then they're not going to survive okay so most will inherit a mother and what the mother will do is the mother will care for them and one way that she cares for them is by licking the anogenital genital region and uh and it turns out that that the mothers will lick the male rats more than the female rats and the reason for that it turns out is because actually in rats this kind of testosterone surge that that for us occurs prenatally actually occurs just after birth. And so the male rat's urine has got more testosterone in it. And the the mother rat finds that quite appealing. And so she'll lick the the males more. And it turns out this licking helps to create differences between the male and the female brains. Amazing, but true. And so if you block the nose of the female rat so that she doesn't show this kind of differential licking, you don't get as much of a sex difference in this particular region of the brain. This particular region of the brain is uh, involved in male sexual behavior. So if the male misses out on this kind of extra maternal licking, he's not as competent at sexual maturity at getting the job done. Um, so it's not just an environmental effect. So it's, there, you know, it's partly from um, you know genetic or hormonal sex differences that this sex difference in the brain occurs. But part of what is creating that adaptive behaviour. So clearly, sexual <laughs> sexual behaviour in a male rat is an adaptation. Like you're not going to reproduce without it. Yeah. But part of what is that developmental resource, part of what's inherited, is this mother, this maternal behaviour. Um, Another amazing example comes from um, comes from experiments where scientists cross foster um, baby lambs and baby kid kids is it kids yeah 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 <laughs> um, with you know the a mother of the you know a, a, a little baby goat with a sheep and vice versa yeah. and yeah. with the males they find out that they they grow up to be sexually attracted to the species that they were fostered by not their own species so again mm-hmm. this is like an example of something that's completely unexceptional wouldn't sort of pay attention to it's just natural that a lamb would be among sheep but it turns out to be quite important for developing a kind of you know um the right kind of sexual attraction and again like having sex with the right species very important for reproduction so the point of the book is well let's think about this in relation to humans because um humans have you know, an extraordinarily rich inherited uh, developmental resource, which is, you know, which is each other um, interacting with each other, you know, just like the the mother rat, but hopefully not exactly like that. (laughs) You know, know, back to the caregivers responding. But we also have, you know, we have sort of all other kinds of um, culture. So we have beliefs and habits and norms and knowledge and cultural artifacts and institutions and right, right. And so culturally evolutionists sort of see all of this as part of our kind of, um, you know, these these are kind of inherited resources mm. um, that we can, uh, that, are, that are part of how we develop. And, um, and the point is that humans, all animals can change their environments but humans are sort of like we are the environment changes you know beyond beyond compare right so um so first of all we can we can sort of change environments and that can change developmental trajectories which i think everyone would um would agree with 
Um, but in a sense, also we're kind of part of our success is that we are so adaptable in these kinds of ways. So we're sort of we've evolved to be adaptable rather than evolved to be X or evolved to be uh, evolved to be Y. So yeah, yeah, so testosterone rex is kind of where I start to say, look, this, you know, we think about evolution as, you know, and, and, you know, particularly in relation to sex differences as like, oh, well, we inherit an XX or an XY chromosomes and that leads to, you know, the, the gonads and that leads to different hormones. And like, so that must be where our adaptive sex differences come from. It must all be from passed on through, ultimately through the, through the genes and then the environment is just something that kind of molds you one way or the other, right? Come back to that quote that I mentioned, or not that quote, but this idea of, you know, physical aggression, like the culture mm. can ramp it down or ramp it up, but it's yeah. like, it's 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 in there from the start, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is a kind of different kind point of view that we're, we're inheriting um, all these resources, not just internal ones, you know, genes and hormones, but also also the external ones, and they're all interacting together um as we as we develop and as we develop and behave so what do you actually um i can't remember now because that explanation is so fascinating and it shows that the strength of the human race is how successful we, we can adapt and continually adapt um is there a a like a challenging summary in the testosterone rex that says we can be what we want to be, basically, or we can create what we want to create. Or what, what would you what would you say that the the summary or the the context after all this research at the back of testosterone rex would be? Yeah, yeah, no. So probably it's probably not. Well, it's definitely not. We could be whatever we want, um, but it's it's a bit more uh, modest <laughs> than mm. that. It's um, it's it's that we tend to think if something was adaptive in our evolutionary past, like if it, if it was adaptive for men to be promiscuous or if it was adaptive for men to be aggressive or risk-taking or whatever it might be, that we tend to think that because evolution just sort of operates through this inheritance of genes, it can only happen really, 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 really slowly. So it'll be millennia before we could change, um, you know, that, that, women are always going to be attracted to men with resources and men are always going to be attracted to, uh, you know, young, young women. And the point of, uh, I guess the message of the book is um, that it, it is a bit more complicated than that in the sense that just because something is a kind of evolved adaptation doesn't mean that it's always going to develop because it's going to depend on the context, the developmental context in which um, in which people um, in which people are raised. So, like you know, the the, the cross fostering lamb and yes, sheep that yes. I mentioned, right? That's that's an example. You would think, you know, it's a really important adaptive trait to be sexually attracted to the right species. Like, we, how could we? We can never get rid of that. Well, you can actually. You just cross. You just cross foster uh, with with a different um, with a different species. Um, yeah, there are also sort of there are you know the other kind of interesting examples um, in the book. Uh, one of them 
oh, this is not in, actually in the book, but it's to do with uh, a particular reflex in the rat. So if, uh, if a rat falls into water, it will, um, it will, it will right itself. It turns out that uh, this, the development of this reflex, which you would sort of think is, you know, we think of reflexes as being kind of things that are just very much genetically inbuilt. It depends on being exposed to gravitational pull. <laughs> so rats that were taken up to space and, you know, had their early, early days up in space don't show this writing reflex when they're okay. taken. They quickly develop it but they don't actually, um, they don't show it from the start. So these are just these interesting examples of how if you reconstruct the development, developmental context in which an animal um, lives and is developing, uh, development can take quite different surprising paths. So I think in that sense, it is a more, uh, it is a more optimistic uh, message. I have to say, I also did, raise some doubts about the kind of traditional evolutionary psychology story about sex differences but that's that's by the by okay i joined i joined the long queue of people who have already criticized evolutionary psychology okay. or long, long list yeah it's interesting um you know how you know you talk about this all day and it's just there in your brain the different examples and the context and how how adapt how we adapt to our different environments in the context that it's in. Is there any um, particular, I might, let's take you into, you're obviously writing another book now. Um, and I, are you allowed to say what the name of that book is? For your, for your publisher? <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I could, but it's not, I'm not, not hundred percent settled on it yet. So. Okay. Yeah, I, I understand <laughs> that. Um, can you in either, in all the, the current book that you're writing, um, Testosterone Rex or Delusions of Gender, can you give an ex an example, a human example of what you just talked about, the how in like uh, a human being, being an, virtually an, uh, the most evolved animal, um, can reconstruct their environment uh, from the, the context that they're in? Is there, is there, is there a... Uh, kind of a real example, like a human example, you can give of that what you talked about in regards to like the the rat example, the goat and the sheep, you know, the adopted parents example. Is this is there things your research has found that you could talk about in this interview? Yeah, I mean it's so it's a, it's a um I mean so one you know thinking from a sex difference point of view, I mean one thing that one can just say is that. You know, there are particular kinds of traits where sex differences can be reversed, right? So at the population level. So um, one example is there are these things called basic human values, um, things like how much you are interested in power or universalism or benevolence. And, um, you know, sometimes depending on which country you look at, uh, those sex differences are actually reversed. Um, economists also have particular ways of um, looking at what they call preferences. So things like uh, they have ways of measuring risk taking and altruism and reciprocity. Uh, again, they've, they've done cross-cultural studies where they see that, uh, I have to say in these cases, they tend to be 
the majority of countries will show sex sex difference patterns in one particular direction, but there are always countries where those patterns um, are reversed. So, um, so these are just examples of, you know, I don't think we can attribute these to genetic differences between these populations, you know, sex-linked genetic differences. This has got to be something to do with um, differences that we, we you know, how does someone's values develop? We don't have a sort of simple answer to that question, but something to do with differences in the gendered environments in those in those different populations. Um, similarly, you can you can tell the same kind of stories across time. So you can uh, particular kinds of um, differences, gender gaps that um, close or um, or even reverse um, over time. Um, Do you want to give an example of that? Well, sorry, when I was thinking of that, I was thinking of a kind of s sort of simple one to do with um, to do with uh, actually studying, going to um, going to university. So in the US and Australia, there's just been a reversal in who makes the decision to make that investment in their in their human capital. So we now have more uh, more women graduating from um, you know degrees, higher education degrees than than men. Same same in the US. Um, there are sort of reversals in terms of jobs as well. Jobs that were once male dominated have become uh, have become female dominated. Um, uh, I can, the, probably the other examples I think of, I wouldn't say there have been reversals, but there's sort of been sort of closing closing of gaps, like things like um, personality traits, like assertiveness, for example. Um, those have tracked women's place in society so as they you know with the second wave movement as they moved into um, higher status jobs in the labor market um, concomitantly there's been the kind of changes in um, the, the, the sort of average assertiveness that you know American women will will um, report of themselves for instance so so these you know these things are these things are changing all the time. Whenever you look at sex differences, you're you're always just looking, uh, always just looking at a snapshot. It's actually a, a really fascinating study of um, low to middle income countries looking at physical aggression um, amongst sort of young young people, adolescents, like same sex physical aggression. And there aren't any reversals in that case case, but there are, there's a huge range. So there are some countries where the sex difference is huge. And there are some countries where there's barely a sex difference at all. So, I mean, how, how does that come about? I don't know, but it's, it's there's something interesting going on, happening, right? Happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, I could talk to you all day. So um, let's just, I, I think, let's start to wrap it up. What's what's your current, what's your new book about? Is it is it a an evolving sequel to the other two yeah or? it is actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm done <laughs> um yes yes it is um see now you'll start to see why i'm no fun to uh, when i'm writing a book um because i'm just instantly grumpy as soon as i start to think about it um yeah i'm not very good at asking questions answering this question of what my what my book is about um, it, it's really, I mean, in a sense, it's coming back to this question of, um, 
you know, why we still see gender inequality, and particularly I'm interested in, in the economic sphere. So we still have lots of sex segregation, both sort of horizontally in terms of the kinds of roles men and women, the jobs they do, and then vertically in terms of who's in management and leadership roles. And um, I, I think the book is really, um, again, sort of questioning these claims that we've sort of reached this, reached the limits of equality, um, but it's also challenging the kind of standard corporate approach to trying to tackle those inequalities, which I think um, are often quite superficial. So um, it, it's it's drawing on, um, as usual, it's drawing on other people's ideas and research. Um, from the comfort of my armchair, and you know, putting putting them all together um, in a in a synthesis. So uh, it's, yeah, how how close to being finished? Um, I was commenting this morning that I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. So <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Soon. Yeah. Well. I think that just about wraps us up. But uh, and I th and I know you're quite modest about your leadership. Um, I don't know with attributes or acumen uh, in in what you do. But uh, if you just take it from me and other people, the wide uh, audience that do know you, you are a leader of your field. So can I ask you this next question in this next context? So you're a leader of your field in, as a professor. Uh, in your um, in your professional life, you're a leader of your field in gender equality uh, through the the absolute gems of um, books that you've published that are researched exquisitely and intensively. So that there's a consistent view. So what would your advice be to any future leaders out there that wanted to go down your path? What 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 maybe three points? Well, I won't limit you to three, whichever, if you've got 10, go for it. Uh, what would your advice be to someone that wanted to go down your path and end up where you're at now, actually challenging and discussing with the world different contexts around mm. Europe? Mm. Well, um, gosh. I think we are, uh, well, I think having a supportive family or um, people, you know, people around you, um, I think writing a book is is challenging. Um, so that's, that, that's one thing. I mean, sort of speaking more broadly, one thing that I, um, when I, when I was teaching um, ethical leadership. I used to have someone come in um, to give talks. He was a sort of whistleblower from a, a foreign exchange scandal, Dennis Gentleman, and he used to, he used to talk about how people, you know, how he would recommend having a kind of council of a sort of informal council of, of advisors. I think was how he put it. And I think uh, there's something. Wonderful. Well, one of the wonderful, many wonderful things about being part of the academic community is that you are surrounded by. Um, I don't want to call people resources because that sounds very instrumental, doesn't it? But you're just surrounded by these amazing, generous people who will give you feedback, and you can bounce ideas off them, and they'll be, you know, they'll encourage you. 
Um, actually, I, I remember this is many years ago, you know, talking, I mentioned before that, you know, I always send every chapter, make sure every chapter of the book is like read by an academic to, you know, so they can, who's an expert, because often I'm often drawing on disciplines that I don't have training in, so I have to make sure that I haven't screwed up. Mm. And uh, I was mentioning this to a friend who, I think she she was an accountant, and, and she said, oh, and like, do you have to, do you have to pay for that? And I was like, no <laughs> and, and I had I just had taken it completely for granted in a way because that's what academics do right you're a part right. of this scholarly community that is global and you can just email someone that you don't even know across you know across the seas and say I've written this chapter and I've drawn on your work or you know I'm this is you're the expert and you know would you would you take a look and you know nine out of ten nine times out of ten they'll say yes of course and they'll give you really helpful feedback but um you know which is an incredible thing and um but also just having people around you who you can talk to and can buy you up and pay you a compliment yeah. when you need it yeah. and things like that so i suppose that's um i suppose that's one no, i get totally get that yeah. yeah um one piece of advice um Hmm. Get up early. Is that too pragmatic? Everyone has, everyone has their own. Everyone has their own preferences for when they when they do their work. Um. Oh, so what a what a what a low note on which to end the, end the interview. I have so I have so little advice for for other people. Um. Quite often, because um, I've really just structured this on you, uh, because what I love about you, like it's literally taken me 12 months to get you on the show because you didn't think you had a, any leadership qualities worthy of being on the show, <laughs> which I totally disagree with. Um, what about, and I think it could be dovetailed to that kind of supportive team, did you, along the way, did you have a coach or mentors or multiples of them that helped guide you to keep going when maybe you didn't want to keep going? Uh, well, I'm quite stubborn, so I was, <laughs> I was never going to not keep going. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I've, I have had, I have had informal mentors. And I, I think what's interesting is sometimes they'll just say, they'll just say, you know, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? And it wouldn't have occurred to you yourself to have, been so ambitious, so to yeah. speak. Uh, but just to have someone who you really respect um, suggest that for you can be um, can be, you know, I hate the word empowering, but it it, it can. <laughs> That's yeah, the, yeah. the only word I can think of. Um, so I think I think you know I think I think that can be helpful. But I I think I probably would already have included those sort of informal mentors as part of that. Support. Um, a part of that support yeah. support team. Um, and I think I think you can mm. you can honestly. Not everyone talks about that. Like if you've you've listened to a few leaders on this show, some people are very individualistic and and they're they're just determined to go their own way. But I think um, the most common theme is support. So I, I think that you you're fine just to have that answer. I'm I'm comfortable if that if you're comfortable, like support. Uh, in my view, is if if we have support, we can literally literally handle just about any challenge. But if we haven't got support, we'll crumble. 
if we're, yeah. if we're, if we're isolated, we, we will crumble. So I'm happy with you don't have to look for anything else. It's not a low point in the interview. I think it's quite. <laughs> I think it, I think it's quite wise, really. But um, uh, I like what you said about the whistleblower. I have an informal council of advisors. Um, yeah. So I, I, in one of my, in one of my police examples, um, a, a, a big boss above me going into the Link Cafe uh, to lead that job took a crit, what he called a critical friend with him. To, to help him just in case he made a stupid decision. Uh, so that's that's essentially an informal council of advisors. So and you're, you've kind of talked about that. I love yeah, yeah, what, what you've talked about today is um, I love what the the theme and the, the sense of belonging in, in, in the academic world. Like you can send an email to someone all over the world and they'll read it for free give you feedback <laughs> like that doesn't happen really in too many places it so, really doesn't it really no, doesn't and no. I you know it's one of the things that I sort of had to, you know I've obviously always immensely grateful but um but hadn't yeah hadn't really thought about just how unusual that actually that actually was um yeah. no yeah. well well if you're comfortable I think we might wrap it up um I, I you're you're exact everything I hoped you're um your interview would be like you really considered in in everywhere you went with all that stuff and and you just took us down your journey in academia and how the books one and two got written uh, and then how um how the third book is just about to be released in what 12 months less than 12 months or uh probably just over yeah you know what a long lead time there is so it'll, it'll be over a year but Hopefully okay. not too much longer than that. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, well, I'll definitely f plug it on this website um, uh, and on my social media once I know it's coming up, as you will for sure. Um, if someone wanted to buy uh, Delusions of Gender or Testosterone Rex, where do they get it from? Well, hopefully all good booksellers, <laughs> including... Uh, that one that we all use but probably shouldn't yeah. <laughs> um yes i i don't know i i <laughs> i'm sure you can you should be able to find it easily through the publisher online okay. alan nunwin or uk or us um yeah i think i think they should both be fairly yeah. easy to find online yeah i found it i found the audio books were relatively easy to find um yeah and i just yeah. that probably my qu query about that question have you got your own website where you sell the books from or that does that exist? um i do have my own website it's very dusty and cobwebby and there might be a link to the book but it might it's probably broken by now i'm not <laughs> i'm not i'm not very into the self-promotion as you probably tell. But I, I just want to clarify that when i said you could probably find it online i didn't mean a free PDF no, <laughs> downloaded no. from the web, so just make yeah, yeah. that quite clear to everyone. So from any <laughs> reputable, uh, well-known booksellers. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and from from what I've seen, it's across all all platforms. So, congratulations um, on on the two books and the third book coming up. And I really, I'm quite humbled that you came on our show because I, I, to me, you are a leader in your field, um, and I thank you for sharing all of your content and all of your thoughts and your considered opinions on our on our humble little show. So thank you, Cordelia. Oh, no, pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> all the best. Ta.
Well, how good was that, everyone? I won't say too much other than to kind of sum up with what Cordelia left left us with in regards to leadership, her little tip. Cordelia says we all need support throughout our lives, our careers and our key decisions. And her takeaway message is we have to have support. Consider the importance of a council of advisors and have those around you for every key moment of your life. Until next time, thanks for listening. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I'd suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sickard. It was edited by Alan Sickard and mixed by Alan Sickard. The theme music is by a musician called Savic and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sickard. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.